All right, this, this morning we are in uh, our series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we're moving on to the, the next petition, which is um, the one we all stumble over when we pray together. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our something. Um, we, we say sins here, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Um, you can say debts or trespasses, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I'm going to read two passages today, from one from the book of Isaiah, one from the book of Matthew. Uh, and then I'm going to, as we've been doing every week, I'll put a question up there from a catechism. This, this question is from Luther's uh, small catechism. So uh, I'll ask the question, and then if you're, if you're willing to participate in a group exercise, you can read the answer out loud as it will be on the screen. First, this is from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him run to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is from Matthew chapter 18, starting at the 21st verse. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison. Until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
This Luther is referring to the debts language rather than sins. So he says, remit our debts as we remit our, what our debtors owe. What is this? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus teaches us to pray. We thank you that your word explains, clarifies that prayer. We are most relieved that Jesus prays for us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who gladly and joyfully join in praying with Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would help us, help our hearts to be soft and open to you, help us to hear your word, and to be people who can rightly and truly pray this prayer, people who are overwhelmed by your forgiveness for us and are freely forgiving with others. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Debts, trespasses, and sins, which is the right answer? What should you be praying? Um, truthfully, the most literal translation of what Jesus says in the book of Matthew is debts. It's the language that he uses is that we would ask that God would forgive or release us from debts as we forgive our debtors. Trespasses comes into the scene in about the 16th century. Uh, Miles Coverdale is translating the scriptures into English. He writes uh, a very famous translation of the Psalms. The Coverdale Psalter gets taken and put into the English Book of Common Prayer in 1662. And it's one of the most beautiful pieces of theological writing and prayer writing that's ever been done. So trespasses sort of latches onto our, our collective memory. And so for that reason, many people then just carried on saying trespasses uh, because of this translation that came out of the 16th century. And we today don't really necessarily know what we should be saying. So we know that right after this, Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 6 teaching on sin and what it means to forgive sin. So we just say, you know what, debts, trespasses, we're, all, we're talking about sin here. Let's just call it sin and call it even. So you can say whatever you want. That's what I'm saying. You can say debts, trespasses, or sins. But having this in mind that there are behind, the behind this word sin, these ideas of debts and trespasses is actually pretty helpful for us. The idea that we would come to church and talk about sin is really uncomfortable for a lot of people for, for different reasons. 
for plenty of people who would come into a place like this, they have personal experiences or experiences with people who have personal experiences or they have these stories in their mind of coming to church, coming to a place like this and having somebody stand at the front like this and scream at you about your sin. And because of that, uh, people have experiences with communities of people who are constantly, it seems, or possibly on the hunt for more sin. And so they're sniffing out sin, usually in other people's lives, not their own. And so church then, in, in relationship to the word sin, becomes this place of, of fear. What, where does my sin fit on the sort of scale of sins? Because it definitely feels like there is one. People are very willing to talk about certain kinds of sins, but never seem too keen to talk about gluttony right before the church potluck. So how do I know which sins are on the wrong side of the scale? How do I make sure that I am talking about or thinking about the right ones? It's a mess in a lot of people's minds. And now, we don't prefer to talk about sin and my own personal entanglement with sin. We live in a, in a world that is, uh, in a culture that is largely uh, influenced, heavily influenced by the therapeutic. We find it uh, potentially harmful to be saying things like, I am a sinner. I regularly sin. Instead, we'd rather talk about uh, diagnoses. We'd rather talk about patterns of habit and Enneagram numbers and personality types and mistakes that we make. The language of sin we just sort of instinctively shy away from because we'd rather not talk about that. But you can't come to the Bible and not talk about sin because the Bible is going to tell you, Jesus will tell you, that sin is what you and I are tangled up in. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't do anything to, to sort of brush that away. He doesn't do anything to take an eraser to that idea. He doesn't say, look, the idea of sin, the way that we're talking about this, is really retrograde. It's, it's really not nice. You don't have to worry about it anymore. This is the good news. You don't have to worry about sin anymore. Jesus, in fact, talks about sin a good deal. And if you felt safe in the room when sin was on the table, Jesus will make you unsafe because he'll tell you all kinds of stuff about you. It's not just the fact that you do things that other people can see. It's that you have stuff that's rattling around in your heart and your mind all the time that implicates you in sin just as if you had done things that everybody does see. God sees it all. From the inside to the outside. And you are implicated. I am implicated. And we have a profound problem with sin. Debts, the language of debts, helps us to clarify what happens when we sin. There is a kind of debt that is owed. 
the wrongdoing that we do means that on the other side of that wrongdoing, we should be doing something to make it right. We owe God something because of our sins, and we owe the people whom we sin against. There is a debt created by sin that puts us in the deficit, and we have to repay. The problem for us is that we continue to add to our debt. It would be one thing if we, we did a thing, a bad thing, and it stopped. But this is like the escalating credit card debt of eternal spiritual relations. Because the interest seems to just compound upon you all the time. You think you make one little bit of progress in paying back a debt, and you just have added more day by day by day by day. You do that by your own behavior. And on the other side of your debt is a person. The debting relationship that you have with him is not a one-to-one debting relationship that you might have with a human being because he is eternal and infinite and his power and holiness. So the scope of your debt is far more vast than you and I properly understand or comprehend so that you and I, Martin Luther would say elsewhere, we are perpetually beggars. We are constantly in the debt of God. And we are trespassers. We trespass boundaries. God puts up barriers. He puts up boundaries around behavior, not to keep us out of his good land, but to keep us in. And we trespass those boundaries and go where we ought not and break the law that he has established. We are both debtors and trespassers in our sin. And Jesus, in his prayer, teaches us to deal with that truth. He he does not say, that we ought to be the people who sort of decide to pull out the, the, the scale of sin and to try to chart or plot where my sin is in relationship to anybody else's. He, he does not say to put the, the scale away and forget and pretend that there is no problem whatsoever. He instead says, your business is with God all the time. And you should regularly be praying this, that he would forgive your sins, that he would relieve you from debt, that he would, in some sense, repair the boundaries that you have transgressed, that he would undo the thing that you cannot undo and make you right because you are in this perpetual scheme between sin, the flesh, and the devil. And only he can release you from it. Jesus is relieving us in this prayer. 
He does, he does us the favor of naming for us the reality that we otherwise might want to skirt, to run away, to pretend wasn't there. He relieves us from the idea that we are the ones who can properly gauge and evaluate our own behavior. He takes all of that off the table for you and just say, look, I know. I know about y'all. Nobody else knows like I know, I know. And you need to be praying that God would forgive you. And then he attaches this thing to it. As we forgive those who sin against us, as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and I'll be honest with you, this is where I spent most of my time looking at this. Because I am deeply troubled by it. <laughs> Jesus doesn't just say this one time, he says it over and over and over again, actually. The obligation of the Christian, the obligation of the one following Jesus to be a forgiver is profound. There, there's really no way for me to, to take the sharp edges off of what Jesus says in this parable that we read. Jesus means it. Just as he says it here and he says it else, as elsewhere. He, he reframes what unforgiveness looks like to help you understand the absurdity of unforgiveness. In, in his parable, he wants you to imagine that one ser servant owes billions of dollars in debt. Essentially, that's the kind of debt that he's talking about. You personally, not the company that you can bankrupt yourself from and separate yourself from. You personally, the servant, you owe several billion dollars to this figure who is coming to collect his debt. And he relieves you, just forgives you. And then you go into the street and you find the guy who owes you a hundred bucks and you want to strangle him in to repayment. You put him in prison because he has failed to pay you what you owe. And Jesus, it's very clear what he's saying. This is crazy. The king says this, like, are you... Do you, do you just forget what I just did for you? How can you? This is absurd that you would do this. And this is what unforgiveness looks like in the economy of the kingdom of Jesus. That you and I would lord over others their own debt to us. And we are not the eternal spotless, holy God whom they have sinned against. We've sinned against that one and he's forgiven us and yet we would imprison and choke perpetually the people that have sinned against us. And Jesus says, you can't do that. You can't. Now, I've tried to like 
push on this a little bit and like, okay, what's the sort of escape clause here? Um, what commentary can I read to get me out of this obligation? Yes, but what, what if so-and-so, what if it's really bad? And there's nothing. I think this is the, the painful part for me and, and, and for me thinking of you is that I know that probably the things that you struggle with to forgive are terrible things that have happened to you. I mean, you probably know if you're a really petty person and are holding people in unforgiveness over really small and silly things. You know. I'm not, I don't really need to talk about that. You should just let that go. I'm talking about the stuff that's, that's really hard. Stuff that, that has scarred you. And Jesus is in this parable presenting this comparison so that you see the dynamic. He's not actually naming the thing that has so deeply wounded you and saying that thing is insignificant. That's not the point of the parable. The thing that has wounded you is really and truly awful. The thing that has hurt you, that has, that has made you angry, that has made you bitter, you have every right to be that way. That's the thing. Is sin is, in some sense, this sin of forgiveness and unforgiveness. You are in the position of what it feels like is justice. Because wrong has been done to you. And you want to punish the person who has wronged you. They haven't kind of wronged you. They haven't like quasi wronged you. I'm saying they actually did wrong you. And what Jesus is saying to you is you have to release them. You have to, you have to absolve them of the punishment that they deserve. And that is really, really hard. It's probably one of the most challenging things that Jesus' followers are required. I mean, some of you might struggle with generosity or sexual integrity. Those things can be tough. But when you have been really and truly wounded by other people, wronged by other people, robbed by other people, to let your grip go of that thing that they have done to you, that will wring you out. That will shake you. What I, what I don't think is that Jesus here is saying when you perfectly forgive other people, then I will forgive you. Because Jesus knows us. <laughs> If that was the deal, if that was the arrangement that God would make with us, with people, nobody would be forgiven anything. We would all be in massive trouble. When you get everything right, then I will come and be kind to you. That is not what Jesus demonstrates in this prayer. It's not what he demonstrates in this parable. But he does mean what he says. 
It is not permitted to you as a Christian to say, I won't. That is not allowed. I will never forgive them for. It's not allowed. And, and you can say like, okay, but what if I treat everybody? I'll forgive everybody else. God still forgives me. If I, if I refuse to forgive that person, he's not going to send me to hell. Therefore, I can just hold on to this thing and do what I want. And if you're ever in the position of looking at your own sin and behavior and saying, what is the minimum that I can do to not go to hell and so I can still do what I please? I don't know how to say this more clearly than this. You are in danger. That is a spiritually unhealthy, it is a spiritually dangerous and precarious place to be. I'm not telling you you're going to hell. That's not my job, thankfully. I am telling you that that is dangerous. Because you are at that point aggressively defending your own kingdom against the advances of Jesus. And you do not want to be in that position. It's sin. Now what you can say freely to Jesus is so hard. It's so hard. It hurts to even think about letting this go. And even some of you might be saying, I want to let it go. And I just don't even know how to let it go. It's like a splinter that has worked its way in and not out. And I can't just, I can't rip it out. But I want to. I wish that I could. And Jesus, he understands people like that. He came for people like that. Because you in that position, when you, when you do that, you are in the same position as every sinner who has ever struggled with their sin. I want, I want to be free. And I can't. And Jesus has always listened for that whispered prayer of desperation. I wish, but I can't. And those are the people that he's attracted to that he loves. Forgiveness is both a choice and a process. As some writers have said, it is a moment. It is a decision of your will. It is a rational thing. You don't feel like forgiving. You've been wronged. And you choose to forgive them because you see the economy of the kingdom and you know that you are the debtor. 
who's owed a billion dollars and been released of it. How can you not? You must. You, you make the decision, I forgive them. And it is the long progression of days, weeks, months, and years by which Jesus brings that release to you. And so I can tell you from my own life, there have been people that I have felt have wronged me. And I have come to Jesus' prayer over and over and over again with them in mind. And every day I'm praying, forgive me of my sins. Help me. Help me forgive these people. I forgive them. Help me to forgive them. And it is at the end of years that I can finally see them and not recoil in my heart. I can hear their name and not call to mind every one of the ways that they have wronged me. I can see their face, I can hear mention of them, and it doesn't break my heart just to know that they exist. It takes years. And then one day, it's over. It's just not there anymore. I don't know why. I don't know why it takes so long. I don't know why it works that way. But I know that if I throw them in prison, in my own mind, and my own heart, perpetually rehearsing the grievances and the offenses and the crimes that they've committed against me, trying to inflict damage on them and poison them, I am the one who's in prison. I'm the one who's in chains. Because they really don't even know that I exist. They don't even care. I'm the only one left caring in that scenario. And what I know is that this is the power of God. It's, it, is, it is irrational that God would look at me, everything I rightfully owe him, all the boundaries that I have transgressed in my mind and in my heart and with my words and with my deeds. It is insane that God would just look at me and release me of all of it. It, it is an insane social proposition that people would live in a tight community Come to love one another, live close to one another, and wound one another. And when look at one another and say, I release you. It's crazy. And it is a proof that God exists in the world. It is a sign that God is actually at work in the world. Luther, in his larger catechism, will explain it this way. He'll, he'll say to you, this is a man who's racked by 
the, the belief or unbelief that God would actually forgive him because of the enormity of his sins. And when God revolutionizes his heart, and he's writing about this, he says, you know, God gives us baptism and communion so that we would have signs of his love for us. But when you participate in forgiving other people, it is a perpetual and frequent sign to you, more regular than communion and baptism, that God has covenanted his love with his people. That is what forgiveness becomes for us. And his power is underappreciated and undertested. I um, this week I finished this book. How to Stay Married, The Most Insane Love Story Ever Told by Harrison Scott Key. Um, he's, I, uh, he's written a couple books before this. This is the story of what happens when his wife cheats on him. They get back together, and three years later, she cheats on him again with the same guy. Um, he's a very funny guy, and this is not necessarily a funny book. It is a funny book. He says, getting married is fun. In the weeks and months before the wedding, you're in passionate love with this glorious gift of a human. The ring, the announcements, the engagement photos where you hold hands and close your eyes and lean in and touch your foreheads together like a pair of telepathic freaks. That part is fun. Staying married is not fun. Staying married is like being kicked repeatedly in the head by a mule who loves you, and the mule is God. That's the tone of this book. At the end, he, um, when he's, his wife, he has a conversation. She, he's on the verge of just saying, done. Like, no more waiting, no more trying. She's in a, an apartment ish thing nearby his house where she's living with this guy and um, just for some reason she just breaks and says please come get me I can't do this and he just runs over there and they just grab all of her stuff they throw it into the truck and they drive home and she says I can't stay here he's going to find me and he'll, I'll go back with him. I don't want to. I don't want to do this. This is just a mess. So they put more of her stuff and they throw it in her car so that she can drive away and just be far from there. And she's losing it. Where was this? Lauren added to the pile more and more. And before we were finished... She, her face drawn and aged, her voice quivering with horror, said, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, and collapsed in the driveway. I ran to her and could not pick her up. Her body weighted with all the world's sorrow. She wept, belted out the gravest moans, the sound of all creations howling in terror. I feel so alone, I feel so alone, she said, heaving and sobbing. You're not alone, he said. I laid my hands across her body and prayed for her like a battlefield chaplain as she lay heaving on the cracked concrete of the driveway. Have you ever seen a living creature die? 
I've seen many. To see the life force rattle out of a body is a powerful thing, holy and horrible. Sometimes you try to stop it, sometimes you try to hurry it along, but mostly you behold and shudder. I watched something die on that driveway. This woman was no longer my wife. I was no longer her husband. We were just two children of God. That's it. That's all anybody is in the end. She has one chapter in here where she writes her own story. And she says, um, the first year home, there were so many awkward and terrible moments. Hey, so I was living with this other dude and now I'm back, so do you want tacos for dinner? There is no rule book. We would watch a movie together and someone would cheat on someone in the show and I would die all over again and I'm pretty sure Harrison would too. The big iceberg in my heart needs to melt and it's still melting. I still struggle with being vulnerable and kind. I love being a mystery of secrets. I've had to rethink romance. I've had to rethink love. It's romance, romantic to steal away for forbidden kisses and text for hours into the night. But maybe love is more than that. Maybe love is loyalty, forgiveness, trust, not running away. I no longer feel trapped. I so often feel sad, but not hopeless. I feel a lasting love and peace for Harrison that I'm not sure I would have felt if we hadn't gone to all the dark places together. He could hold this over my head, but somehow does not. Forgiveness in a supernatural way. The kind of forgiveness, that kind of forgiveness is definitely not normal. Little about my story or my husband is normal. I've had so much death in my life, actual death, emotional death, but I've had life too. We have three amazing girls I love more than words can ever express. I'm so grateful that the story of my leaving will not define their lives though my dad's leaving almost defined mine. I almost killed them to get what I thought I wanted. Thanks be to God, I did not. This is a line we say every Sunday during communion. Soren hands us the bread and the wine, and he says, body of Christ, broken for you. We reply, thanks be to God. I used to cringe when saying that, but now it feels different. Now it feels like deep breath, exhale, Thanks be to God, body of Christ broken, my heart broken, my life broken. It is the power of grace and forgiveness that brings her home and repairs their marriage. And it is ultimately the power of the grace of God that provides for her any kind of hope that she will be all right. It is the broken body of Christ that demonstrates to you and to me God's own commitment to the ones who would pray this prayer. That it is his body split open that would nail your debt to the cross, as the New Testament would say. And it is the brokenness of our own lives together that become for us channels and avenues of the forgiveness and mercy of God that proclaim his greatness. Jesus made his people to be praying this prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us because we are the people whose lives are broken and wrecked by all kinds of sin. And it is only him 
that will deal with us in the truth of that and the clarity of that and will set us free. And if you are caught in sin today, as we all have been, there is only Jesus here to set you free. There is no magic. There's only Jesus. All we have is just to be his children. And if you are here today particularly caught in the grip of the sin of unforgiveness, it is for you too that Jesus has come. The thing that you're clinging to, the thing that you don't want to, or the thing that you can't seem to let go, it is for that that Jesus was crucified and for you that he has come. And I don't know when you will feel better, but I know that one day you will because one day you'll see him face to face and all the economics of forgiveness will work out. You may never get what you need from the other person. You, in fact, almost certainly will not but you will get Jesus. And it's a better deal. And you should let go as far as you can and let yourself go into his hand. Lord Jesus, I can't. Will you help me? And his broken body is for you too. And if today you are realizing you have never ever dealt with the reality of your own soul, that you stand before God as both a debtor and trespasser. You should pray this prayer because Jesus will forgive you. He will wipe away your debt, bring you back within the boundaries of his own love and goodness. And you'll make your home with him as you were always meant to because this prayer has an answer. And it's yes. For you and for me forever. It's a yes. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are people who are marked by sin. We are marked by other people's sin. We are beneficiaries of an impossibility and we are people who find it impossible at times to give from what you have given us. We confess to you all of it. Everything. All the hiddenness, all the darkness, it's all there, Jesus. We confess to you that we are slow to forgive, quick to anger. We are so not like you. Jesus, help us to hear the words of Isaiah 55, that you are at hand, ready to pardon much. And Father, I pray that for all of those who, who know you, trust you already, who are laboring in the work of forgiveness, God, I pray that they would cling to their hope that is only in you, 
that you will not trade with them. You give as a gift what we could not earn by any measure of good things. And that you will be faithful to us even as we struggle to let things go into your hand. God, would you help us to quickly release what we would cling to and use as weapons against others, which really only damages us more than anybody else. And Father, I pray for those who are here today who have never turned to you for forgiveness. They have labored under their own debts and trespasses. And God, I pray that you would call to them clearly and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would respond and that they would be set free in you. I pray that they would see that no matter the immensity of their debt before you, you are the king who can relieve it and your will is to do so. I pray, Father, that all of those who feel lost and caught in sin would turn to you very clearly and say, Jesus, I cannot, I can't. Will you save me and set me free? Jesus, I thank you that this is your heart for all of us saints who are sinners and all sinners who would want to be saints. We turn ourselves over into your hand, forever grateful that is the hand of a forgiving God. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your love for us. Amen.